everybody, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Hope your summer's going really well. Thanks for joining us here today as we look through Beaulieu and Narsajac's Vertigo, or as it was called, Leantre de Mont. Thank you. <laughs> my name is Scott Powell, and I'm joined, as always, by my reader in arms. This time, not across the pond, Josh. Definitely not. Right across the table. Right across the table, yeah. Uh, my summer holidays have brought me back to my native land, my home and native land, and uh, Josh and I are together for the first time in, what, five years? Five years, yeah. yeah. And uh, enjoying some podcasting time. Uh, Josh, this book um, we've had for a wee while now on our reading list. Most people, I think, would recognize its title, Vertigo, yes. as being uh, that which inspired the Alfred Hitchcock film, but as you intimated in beautiful French brogue, this book has a history before that, doesn't it? It certainly does. Yeah. But it's also related to Hitchcock in that history. Oh, it is, yeah. I mean, and you can't sep- well, you can separate the two, as, as we'll do on the show today, but we'll also um, we'll nod to the influence of, of the great film master, won't we? As always. As always, yeah. How's your reading been going outside of uh, lighting the pipes? You doing anything? Getting into anything? The only thing I'm reading right now is a history of Japan. Uh, not a small tome. <laughs> not a small tome. It's a reprint from a 1970s edition. There's actually not a lot of English written um, histories of Japan available. And this one in particular was written in the 70s and has recently been released. So I, I picked that up. The main reason I'm in a Japanese history is I have a sister who is in the animation field mm-hmm. and um, she's got me into some anime. Yep. And so I've kind of just been interested into Japanese culture through that. I guess it's an osmosis situation. So not only am I watching film noirs a lot now because of letting the pipes, but now I've been kind of getting into like Kurosawa and some classic anime. Cool. So Japan's kind of on my mind right now. And um Mm-hmm. Yeah, just it's just a history that I, that I don't know too much about, and uh, just you know, I'm very interested in particular into the the Sengoku period, which is the time of Warring States. So this is when you have guys like uh, Nobunaga and Ayasu, and it's almost like it's the War of the Roses set, but it's in feudal Japan. Very cool. So it kind yeah. of it kind of fits into that um, historical niche that I like anyway. So yeah, that is your wheelhouse. That is my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, you do like that. Absolutely. So who wrote the book that you're reading? R.H.P. Mason and J.G. Kiger, and the original publication, 1973, and this revised one is from 1997. Yeah. I've gotten through, like, the ancient period of Japan, the Han period, and now I'm in almost halfway through the book, feudal Japan, essentially, and uh, things are starting to fall apart. (laughs) (laughs) So we're getting getting close to this, the Senjoku Senjoku period. Senjoku period, that's right. Which leads eventually into the Edo period, which was 200 years of insulation for Japan up until Admiral Perry of the U.S. Navy showed up in Tokyo Harbor, where they began to uh, strip away the old samurai way of life, but still keeping into their traditions and to the ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And this is when you get the modern industrial Japan that eventually becomes the empire that, you know, lasted up until the end of the Second World War. Um... For those who've seen The Last Samurai, it kind of tells that story in a Hollywood kind of way, but you know what I mean. Cool. Yeah. Anyways, that's what I'm reading. What about you? Well, let's see. What have I been reading? Jeez, you know what? I haven't done much reading. 
That's true. You've been very busy, though. You've been yeah. handling the fam. For... I've been handling the family on holiday, yeah. yeah. But no, I haven't been doing much reading, apart from Vertigo and uh, the Bond book. Oh, yeah. You know, we also have a John Gardner yeah. reading for our other podcast for the James Bond series. Aye. So that's it. it's been good, though. It's been good. Good stuff. So, as always, I hear on Lighting the Pipes, we're going to start with some fast facts on our authors and publication, and then we'll get into a plot summary. And this time, Josh, we've we've switched, haven't we? We switched to... Uh, yeah. Responsibilities. Uh, Scott will be taking care of the fast facts, and I will be taking care of the summary. Yeah, just to mix it up a little bit. Yeah. You know? I have a nice off-the-cuff summary, I think, that fits our informal kind of session yeah. here that we're doing. Yeah. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's uh, great to be back in Canada, and I'm really happy that we've been able to to meet up to do this at least uh, once every couple of years. Glad we should to have try, you. To, try to get together in person. Absolutely. And um, if you are a fan of... Uh, of our other podcast, uh, Bond by Numbers, which we do with Jeff Chapman. We were able to meet up with Jeff last night and record a fun episode there. That'll be coming out shortly as well. So That's right. maximizing our time together while away from the family, while I'm away from my family at the very least. Yeah. So yeah, we hope you enjoy the show, everybody. And uh, with that said, it's time to talk about Vertigo. Now, I talked about the U2 song, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I guess <laughs> no. I should get rid of those notes then. <laughs> you should, yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised you could write as many as you. I did. had a whole rant how U2 hasn't been great since the late '80s. Oh, so, well. I'll give the mid '90s U2, but uh-huh. I think they've lost their touch. And Vertigo, I think, was the beginning of that. It's a good song, though. It's a good song. It's an okay song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, this this novel written by the uh, what, a du- we have two a duo. people writing this book. Yeah, we got two people writing this book. Boileau Narsajac is the pen name of French writers Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narsajac. Uh, together, they're one of France's most successful writing duos. Both <laughs> men received the prestigious Prix de Roman d'Aventure before starting a partnership in writing. From the 1950s, though, to the 1980s, they published 43 novels, 100 short stories or so, and four plays together. Their works have inspired numerous films, not surprisingly, uh, you know, of the French persuasion, of the French production studios and whatnot. And the Clouseau film, um, Les Les Diaboliques. Yeah, Yeah. that's right, yeah. Uh, These two guys are credited with having helped form a uniquely French subgenre of crime fiction, with emphasis on local settings and psychological suspense, moods of disorientation and fear. Now, I'm uh, just reading through my notes here, Josh, and I see that their second novel, I don't know if you've come across this as well or any of our listeners, their second novel, She Who Was No More, was their breakthrough novel in 1952. Are you familiar with that text? Not, no. No, neither am I. This is the only one that that I knew of. Their success was sealed further, though, when Alfred Hitchcock adapted The Living and the Dead, better known to readers as Vertigo, which is the novel that we're looking Le at Entre today. Mort. Le Entre des Morts. In 1964, Boileau Narsajac published The Roman Policier, which is a theoretical study of the crime genre. Much like other writers have done before, that we've talked about here on the show, these two guys wrote their own kind of treatise on, on how crime fiction works. Now, they must have been somehow connected then to, like, the Nouvelle Vague. Like, they must have, like, been in the same circles as, like, Godard mm-hmm. and Truffaut mm-hmm. because those filmmakers, the French New Wave filmmakers, they, after the war ended, 
they guzzled up all the film noir that they could from that yeah. from that period. Yeah. So they had a very under, strong understanding of the structure as well as the way to subvert that structure and those tropes. So I'm wondering if those two, these two writers, if they were somehow involved with that crowd as well, because the fact that they're publishing, you know, theses uh-huh. on on the, this the genre, genre in yeah. particular seems like they might have been connected to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They could have been. Um, I'm sure some of our listeners would know more about that. And yeah. I didn't do too much research on it, got to be honest. No, th- but what I do know is that Truffaut does mention these guys in his Hitchcock book. Yes. And the, the particularly... Fam- the conversations, yeah. The conversation, particularly around Vertigo, where he's speaking to Hitchcock about the um, the kind of genesis of the story. Yes. And uh, Hitchcock... I think I got a little note written about that later on. We'll see if I got that coming up. Uh, yes, I do. I got something like that coming on. Anyway, getting back then to uh, our, our writing duo here, let's subdivide it into into the two constituent parts. Pierre Boileau was born in 1906 in April. He studied business and was preparing for the job in the same career, the same sort of pathway, but his passion for detective fiction won out. He started contributing stories and novellas to various newspapers and magazines, and that helped to build his reputation as a writer. One of his most famous characters was a dapper detective named André Brunel. Le Repos de Bacchus, so the sleep of Bacchus. Sleep or of Bacchus, okay. The rest of Bacchus, I presume. Something to do with wine Le Repos. Roman, Roman wine and merrymaking. Right, so in 1938 is when Boileau was awarded the Prix de Roman d'Aventure, which is a big, you know, it's not quite like the Edgar, you know, no. but it's it's an award of similar stature. Yeah. Uh, a... Um, a crime fiction writing award. And he won that for Le Ropo de Bacchus, so the Bacchus's rest or Bravo. sleep of, yeah. He was drafted in World War II, Josh, taken prisoner in 1940, okay. and he spent two years in a stalag, and while he was there, he met Jean-Paul Sartre. He was eventually released from the stalag in 1942 and returned to Paris. He worked for a couple of years as a social worker, and that work involved interviewing prisoners at various penal colonies, and helping the disadvantaged. So he had an interesting sort of um, concretizing uh, background, you know, to his crime fiction. That's true. And what's interesting about that is like 1942. So there was a liber, maybe the French resistance got mm-hmm. him out or something like that. Well, That's no, I possible. think it had more to do with his health. I think he had health problems um, that stopped him. Was it, was it, I can't remember if it was like if it was vision problems or something that kept him from going So the back Germans in. got him out yeah, of the camp and then they so. put him in Paris and they used him for what they could they yeah. could do for managing population maybe or something yeah. like that psychiatric or disabilities or uh-huh. interesting. interesting yeah it is very interesting uh, he resumed writing in 1945 just when the war ended and he scripted a couple of successful radio series following the war but it was really when he met up with Pierre Ayro or Thomas Nasdrak as mm-hmm. he he went by that his writing career really took off now Narsajak was born on the 3rd of July, 1908. He lost an eye in a childhood accident, which prevented him from following family tradition of being a merchant seafarer. Hmm. He used the name of a hamlet near his favorite fishing river, the Charente, when picking his pen name. What, what part of France is he from? Rochefort. Yeah, he was born in Rochefort. Rochefort. Uh, the Charente Maritime, so... Okay. It's kind of like in the south towards the coast, like Aquitaine, essentially. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, our friend uh, Narsajac studied at the universities of Bordeaux, Poitiers, and Paris, where he received degrees in literature and philosophy. 
He became a professor of philosophy and literature in Nantes in 1945. He held that position until 1967. Along with Boileau, Narsajac also collaborated with Serge Accru to produce a series of novels imitating American thrillers. So in 1947, Narsajac published an essay, La Statique du Roman Policier, The Ethics of the Crime Novel, which drew the attention of Pierre Boileau. And after a period of correspondence, they met in person at the 1948 awards dinner where Narsajac was receiving his own Prix de Roman. And that's kind of where the friendship started off, yeah? Now, in terms of the publication history of this particular book, Vertigo or... Le Dentremont. Le Dentremont, The Living and the Dead, was first published in 1954, but in English in 1956. All editions use the same translation in English, that done by Geoffrey Sainsbury. Critical reception of the time was positive. The Spectator, the Times Literary Supplement, were both glowing with praise. Anthony Boucher, Josh, our friend on the show, Anthony okay. Boucher, he was less warm, would it surprise you to learn, uh-huh. suggesting that the writer's decision to rework tricky plotting of an earlier novel, She Who Was No More, met with, quote, unfortunate results in this book. So I guess Boucher saw it as a bit of a bit of a hack a bit of a rehash of a previous idea which i guess yeah but that would lend support to the idea that they wrote it for hitchcock given that they knew he wanted to buy that earlier book yes you know what i mean so i can see why the naysayers or the uh, conspiracy theorists would feel as though yeah that's what they did well since the release of hitchcock's film this novel has been heavily overshadowed because the film you know kind of blanketed, particularly outside of Europe, blanketed anyone's understanding of the source material, I think. And even, I think we would admit, having read the book and studied it recently, talking about it today, that ghost of Hitchcock's film still kind of lingers around and upon it. It does, it does, yes. It does. Well, in his famous interview, Truffaut suggested to Hitchcock the theory that these authors wrote it for him, hoping for a treatment after it was rumored he tried to buy the rights to She Who Was No More. Narsajak downplayed the suggestion later, claiming that the idea for the novel came to him in a movie theater watching a newsreel. And of course, a newsreel is important to this novel, mm-hmm. kind of a key scene yeah. in the novel. Well, having not read anything else, though, buddy, by these two writers, I got no reason to doubt the author when he says this is, you know, this is where it came from. Exactly. Still, though, knowing Hitchcock likes your stuff, it certainly isn't going to you know, demotivate you Definitely to rehash not. something yes. you've already done, is it? Even subconsciously, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so yeah, there's some publication history and some fast facts on the two writers, Boileau and Narsajac. And uh, now we'll slide over into a plot summary. Yeah. All right. Paris, 1940, prior to the German invasion. Well, we have a shipbuilding magnate named Jevenet. He hires an old school chum to shadow his wife. The chum is one Roger Flavier, a former detective for the Parisian police who left the service after believing himself the cause of a police constable's death who fell from a roof while they were pursuing a suspect, mostly due to the fact that Flavier was crippled by vertigo Mm. during the pursuit. Just, Just to interject... How are you with heights, typically? I'm not great. 
Yeah, I'm not great either. I've gotten much better. Like things like skiing and things like you know flying. I don't have a problem that in that way. Yeah, it's, me. It is edges with me. It's kind of like you know the precipice of things. Like I get that sort of tingly excitement. And yeah, I don't want to jump to like you know do anything dangerous to myself. But I kind of wonder like can can we can we fly? <laughs> Will it That's work? the thing. Like you know what I mean. I remember because I used to live in a high rise apartment and yeah. we had a balcony. Yeah, and sometimes when you're on that level and. Or, or even like when I visit my friend in Toronto and I go on his balcony. Yeah. And he, he, had, he had a great view from where he was at the Toronto skyline. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about being high up there that like flying would be pretty awesome. It would be. You it know? really would, yeah. But then there's a sense of going like, it's almost like you want to jump off. Yeah, and not and not to not to do anything you know dangerous to yourself. Exactly, you just want to see, don't you? Yeah, but in terms of heights, though, like I I was okay with heights for most of my life up until I had an incident when I went to a water park, and I guess I was one of those big tall water slides where you have to take the steps all the way up to the top, like a hundred feet, and then you go on the slide. And I was told to go, but apparently there was people down at the bottom who still hadn't left the, the landing pool yet. Right. So I was told to stop before I go. And I was basically dangling over the side. Ooh. And then they told me that then I went, and then all I could see was like my legs going kind of... It was a very harrowing experience. Yeah. And ever since because then... Because you're, you, what you're expecting is, oh, I'm here for a thrill, I'm here for some fun. And you start your motion, and then it's like in between... Nobody stops in between. No. And so that would have, yeah, I can see that. It's like, yeah. it's like, yeah. What do you do in this empty it's space? It's water slidus interruptus. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Water slidus interruptus. Yeah. I like it. And that's basically, ever since then, I had a kind of a fear of heights. Now, I've been up to the Empire State Building, but I was on uh-huh. the gallery part uh-huh. of it. So, like, that didn't really bother me too much. Yeah. And, but ever since, but that was prior to the water park incident, mm. I think. And ever since then, I've been kind of leery of heights. Like, even, like... Some high stairways or escalators kind of freaked me out afterwards. Hmm. Um, so I can I can ha- have that vertigo experience. Um, I might be going to the CN Tower this weekend. All right, so cool. I'm going to test myself yeah, out on that. Test. And you won't be chasing you know criminals uh, exactly. So yes, yeah, or out of the pavilion, out of the uh, observational points. Yeah, I mean the observation station at CN Tower should be fine. The one thing I'm kind of debating about is going on the part of the CN Tower. I don't know if you've been into the CN Tower. Not recently. But there's a whole no. floor of like armor thick glass. Uh-huh. And you walk on this floor and the the, the floor is basically like... Looking down. Look, it's glass. Yeah. And you're looking down at like this, yeah. this, this, this city of... The Toronto. Yeah. Nearly 2,000 feet below. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting chat. Sorry to interrupt the... Uh, the plot summary, but I just thought it was it was the moment to ask you. <laughs> right. That's okay, no problem. So, Flavius was crippled by vertigo, and this policeman fell to his death, and I think he's felt terrible about it since. Jevenet believes his young wife, Madeline, is possessed by the, her great-grandmother, Pauline Lagerlach. While this behavior, you know, is off-putting to say the least, Jevenet fears that his wife may be in danger from herself. You see, Pauline Lagolac committed suicide at the age of 25, which is the same age as Madeleine. Mm-hmm. Flavier is skeptical, but he could use the cash, so he takes a case. Yeah. Um, at this point, he is now working as a lawyer because he did study law back in the past. Yeah. Just want to add that aside in there. So he takes the case. Following Jevenet's instructions, he makes visual contact with Madeleine when Jevenet takes her to a play. It's love, quote-unquote, at first sight for Flavier. Target yeah. locked. He begins to follow her, at one point all the way to the cemetery where lies Pauline Lagerlach. He pursues her again all the way to the banks of the Seine. He observes her, 
writing a letter at a Riverside Cafe, only to watch her as she jumps into the river. Flavier goes in after her, saving her life. As they dry off in a tavern, he is frustrated to see Madeline cracking jokes at the situation, um, bringing a sense of levity to it. But the connection is made, or so Flavier believes. She confirms Jevenet's suspicions that the spirit of her great-grandmother has a hold over her, and Flavier eats this up, helplessly falling for her and believing she feels the same. Mm -hmm. On a whim, she asks Flavier to take her to a hamlet just west of Paris, complete with a church and a bell tower. Upon entry to the church, she begins to ascend the somewhat sturdy tower staircase. Flavier proceeds to follow, but his vertigo kicks in and he cannot complete the ascent. He does get a front row seat via the window of Madeline's death. She plummets from the bell tower, head first. Not knowing what to do, Flavier flees, and then we get a time jump four years later. At this point, we are at D-Day plus something because Paris has been liberated. Flavier has returned to Paris and is seeing a psychiatrist. We learn that Madeleine's death was ruled as a suicide. Jevenet inherited her estate, but scared of police inquiries. Why would he be if she killed herself? Yeah. He flees Paris, but was blown to smithereens in a German bombing of the countryside. Was it a bombing or was it a machine gun attack? I thought it was a... I'm not picking bones with you because, you know, I'm trying to interrupt you. I'm just, like, I thought it was a machine gun attack. I thought it was, he was machine gunned down. That's what the book said. Okay. I thought... But anyway. No, I think you're right. I think it was. I was getting mixed up because um, the German ordinance also hits the grave of Madeleine Javine as well, right? Mm-hmm. And that, so that gets rid of her body. Yeah, completely. it's just, yeah, it's just it's, the, the war wiping out the evidence. Atomizes everything. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think he was machine gunned because he was talking to the the maid at her place, right? Yeah. So Flavier's psychiatrist orders him to take a holiday so that he can forget about Madeline, who is haunting his thoughts and dreams. Before he goes on holiday, he catches a film screening and a newsreel depicting Charles de Gaulle in Marseille shot inside the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. This newsreel reveals a familiar face. It's Madeline, or so Flavier believes. The reading audience remains skeptical. Yeah. Regardless, Flavier takes a trip to Marseille and puts himself up for a few nights at the Waldorf Astoria. In the dining room, he sees her, Madeline, with another man. He asks, quote-unquote, Madeline to dance, to which her gentleman acquiesces. She says her name is Renée Sorange. She doesn't know a Madeline and doesn't know a Jevenet either. But if we are to believe Flavier, it's her. Mm-hmm. Seeing the advantage here, Renée doffs her current sugar daddy and shacks up with Flavier, though maintaining that she is Renée, not Madeline. Flavier both in love with the idea of Madeline and determined to find proof that Renee is Madeline, well, it's disturbing to say the least. Mm-hmm. Flavier pushes and pushes, taking her out to dinner, buying her clothes that Madeline would wear. Renee denies and denies. His obsession and possessiveness escalate to dangerous levels. She wants to get away, but as it turns out, she is also crippled by her own guilt, so much so that she can't escape from him. Finally, searching her purse, Flavier finds the necklace of Pauline Lagerlach the one Madeline used to wear years ago when he was shadowing her. A trophy of her misdeeds or a reminder of her sins. Mm. Renee is her name, she assures him, and tells him the whole tale of woe, that Jevenet wanted Madeline's money even after taking over her father's business. He hired Renee to pose as, a, as Madeline Jevenet and set Flavier's on her tail to believe the lie, that she was mentally disturbed and that her suicide would not be ruled by anything but. Flavia realizes that the witness at the church didn't see he and Madeline drive away. 
They saw Jevenet and René driving away after Jevenet threw his wife from the tower as René ascended it. She was never Madeline, the woman he desired, that he fell in love with. He denies this, denies it so much that he assures René is Madeline as he strangles her to death. He confesses to the crime. The police inspector is kind enough to let him say goodbye to, quote-unquote, Madeline, with a kiss to her forehead. I shall wait for you, he says. And so, from among the dead, comes to a close. But for Roger Flavier, the story will go on forever in his mind. Yep, it goes on forever in his mind, yes. And I just corrected myself there. So, Leontre Mortz isn't the living and the dead. It directly translates to from among the dead. From among the dead. Yeah, but it's been also known to be called the living and the dead as well. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is different from Mort de Ar. <laughs> yes, quite different. <laughs> quite different. <laughs> Even though we got someone of the lack in that. but We do, we do have the lack, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we got the, yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's... Uh, Vertigo, the novel anyways, in a nutshell. For those who have seen the film, obviously just reading that summary, you can see the differences, yeah. particularly in the ending. <laughs> yeah, particularly in the, the second half, really. The second half of the film, yes. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into our pipe, shall we? Right. Okay, Josh. Now, on Lighten the Pipes, we have our scoring system, which listeners, of course, will be familiar with. But uh, in the event that we have anybody new tuning in today, explain the pipes. All right. So our categories are an acronym, the word pipes. So the first P is for principles. I is for investigation. P, again, is for perpetrators. E is for environs. And S is for supporting characters and we give each of these categories a market of five that's right which gives us an index for our scoring okay so let's start then with principles uh, we've got Roger Flavier here in this story who is really our principal character definitely uh, it is to him that most of the plot is geared and Good. targeted and the conflict surrounds so why don't you start by talking about Flavier and what you thought of him Okay, well, let's give him a bit of a, bit of a character sketch okay. um, to start with. So, not married. Not married. Bachelor. Bachelor. Um, full of anxiety, full of guilt, PTSD about the policeman's death from falling. Um, there are subtle hints that he's jealous of people more powerful and wealthy than he. Um, despite, you know, being friendly with Jevenet in the first chapter, he also feels the man is keeping something from him. And the, the writing also kind of hints at this as well for obvious reasons. When it comes to Madeline, um, his target, he is first curious, then obsessive, then possessive, and then outright delusional in the end. Overtly, he is a gentleman. He's chivalrous with that mien of professionalism to him. But what's hiding is a very twisted psyche um, that's been in the subconscious, I think, that gets pushed and prodded by the circumstances that he's in to coming to the surface. Um, so he's a character that's presented with the capability um, of having layers of death. Uh, and this is kind of where... So what I presented to you is kind of a sketching of a character, of a psychological profile. Yeah, yeah, and, it's, it's kind of like a profile. Yeah. yeah, and this is what I feel that the writers are kind of giving us in, in the story. So they, they basically mention all the functional uh, aspects of him and how he will relate to the, how he will push the story based on these behaviors. But so there's this illusion, I think, of... There's layers of depth to his character, but in 
to be critical, I find that we get very little to help us sympathize with his later actions. So he's presented as a case study of obsession and delusion. His inner thoughts show us that he's very possessive and somewhat misogynist. But I mean, the last thing I would say is probably something of the time. But yeah, even, I, I struggled even, with that too. Even they, so. Yeah, I did struggle with it. We'll, uh, we'll talk later about yeah. it. Sorry. But yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from. Yeah. And this etching helps tell the story of Flavier, but distances us from the relating with the character. So I think a little depth in his backstory, maybe more blurbs about his childhood, or even glimpse at his parents would have fleshed him out more to understand him. Like, we know that he followed his father into the detective fields. And so that, to me, could have put a burden on him, psychological burden on him. We don't get a lot about what, who his father was. And these kind of how your parents are, like in the most clear Freudian ways, determines, you know, the men that people are going to become. Uh, in Flavier's case, and I think this would be a very critical. This would be very important to me as a reader to kind of sympathize with him more. And I feel that like I don't quite get that enough in the story. <clears throat> like we get hints that he's envious of Marco. Remember, Marco was the guy in college yep. who got yeah. all the girls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and he accused all the women of vamping around and being all you know, trying and teasing yeah. and whatnot, right? And he was the guy that never. Marco said, you know, you got to treat a woman as if you've already been with them. Yeah. And and, he, I don't, and I think that he just found that maybe there was some part of him being a gentleman where he found that was wrong, so he repressed it. And then when he gets to a point where he has a chance to be with a woman, it's for the wrong reasons. It's it's for it's completely an, an unethical situation, as much as the fact that he's being led around because they know that he would react this way. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. we have... That's, Jevenet, that's an astute reading of it. Yeah. Jevenet already ha- has the power and influence that his friend... Flavier is never reached. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Flavier was was crippled by his vertigo and the death of the policemen. So deep down, he might have been a good man. He's in, in a way he's a good man, but he just got led down the wrong path. You, you could say, and he he wouldn't be able to do what Jevenet did was arrange the murder of his wife and and do all that sort of stuff to his friend. Like I don't think he would have crossed that line as much as he disliked Jevenet for certain reasons. I don't think he would ever cross that line. But he ends up crossing it in a, in a different way than Jevenet did, you know, through his obsession. So I think they plotted that part out. So I give the writers kudos to that. That's definitely in the writing and how they show the character. But I think they just needed to kind of give us more background, more foundation to those behaviors. To me, that would make him to make me empathize with his character. Right. Mm hmm. Like, we know his father was an inspector, that he pursued that career, and that path led to the dead police officer and to his PTSD, and altering his perceptions on how he views things, you know, even in regard to Madeline. So, he becomes possessive of her, but there's a sense he's getting one up over Jevigny as well. As, as I said, all of these instances, they contribute to solidifying his character for us, but the more obsessive and controlling he gets, the more detached I get as a reader emotionally, because mm, yeah. I'm not quite understanding yeah. what's kicking him over the edge, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And they're giving us subtle hints, but just for me, it's just not enough, but this, the subtle hints that they do well, when I'll say this, when I learned after reading the book and I read about the authors, and that the fact that they kind of wrote this as almost a treatment for Hitchcock... Well, potentially. Potentially. Yeah. I, 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 that made me think back at the narrative that was given. And we're getting like the sketchings of these characters' profiles. And they're put into this situation, a very Hitchcockian situation, even before he did Vertigo. So we're familiar with those tropes. And I just felt that like I could see the skeleton of the story built in that way. 
you okay. know? Yeah. And, and to me, the character was just navigating that skeleton or he was navigating that path hmm. to where he gets to by the end of the story. So he was just a little thin character-wise for me. I wanted a little bit more depth from him. Okay. Everything else I found was, was great. I did find him compelling in some way, but I was just kind of detached from it and disturbed by it. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know, but I just wanted something a little bit more. So I can't, I don't want to give it, I'm not giving it a low mark in mm-hmm. any capacity, mm-hmm. but I'm going in, in terms of like, you know, it's a well-researched character study. The writers are pushing for clinical credulity yep. uh, with this character and they mostly succeed at that task. I'm just a little foggy on his motivations, at least, you know, beyond a surface level. Beyond a surface level. Yeah. Good. So I give it three and a half out of five. All right. Man, just listening to you talk about that has kind of made me reconsider it because I I agree with what you're saying and I'm I'm glad that you got that from the writing. Uh because I felt like I felt like those building blocks were there, but there was like a heavy blanket stopping me from accessing it. Mm. I couldn't get past the characters the characters kind of obsessive tendencies yeah kind of but mostly that second half through a, a heavy wet blanket of misogyny and obsession that i could not get past yeah. so i hear everything you're saying i do i absolutely do like i understand the character study stuff that he was a you know he was a an insecure target a vulnerable victim for a guy like Jevenier to play on yeah right but his default, which, okay, maybe it is a default for the culture, a default for the time, that default to traditional gender roles and male control and exerting that authority over other women. And throwing those neuroses on top Absolutely, of Absolutely, throwing those neuroses on top of it. But I just felt like that was, it made me struggle to sympathize with him or to see him as a victim. I mean, I'm tying in with what you said about struggling to empathize. I just didn't give the character as much credit. And maybe, like, I find that his efforts, right? Like, his efforts and behaviors in the story were so blindly entitled. And I mean blindly entitled. I'm a man. I'm a male. I'm allowed to drink a lot. I'm allowed to be rude a lot. I'm allowed to uh, control another human life the way I want because I'm of a certain status. I felt that there was an entitlement, a righteousness almost. Um, and about as misogynistic as any male character we've read on the show, yeah, this guy. Definitely. But maybe that's of the time and of the culture, but that doesn't mean that that's, you know, that, that's not something I'm going to forgive him for. No, because that's serial killer soup. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, think about the second half of the book and Flavier's behavior within it, right? Like, I felt like, Boileau and Narsajak were writing with an open permissibility for this guy and his ridiculous behavior towards and treatment of Rene. Yeah. I felt like they were just like, whatever you want to do is okay. Yeah. Whatever you want to do. Like, to be honest, it was uncomfortable reading in some parts, yes. the second half of this book for me. Like, it's repetitive in its abuse of her and it is mm-hmm. uh, his and his control of her. And I know we're saying the same things, but in terms of the character study that you cite, like, I didn't, I couldn't easily go to that level of credit for the character. I, I should, as you know, as a literary reader, I want to. Yeah. But I, I just couldn't. I found that I was, I was blanketed. I come back to that verb. I was just blanketed by, by his foul behavior. Like, yeah. He's a, he's a, 
he's a restless and a regretful man who, as you say, he's definitely repressed. Uh, and I, I do think that the blueprint is there with Marco and all of that stuff about how he can't access women and sex and all of that stuff, yeah. right? He does have moments in the first half of the story, moments of compassion. He yeah. does have moments of compassion. He speaks nicely or kind of reflectively with uh, Gevinier and whatnot, but he's not. He's just not drawn as a particularly deserving character, mm. as a protagonist that we're later meant to see as the victim of this, this tangled skein, this web of kind of, oh, we got you, Flavier, we got you. Yeah. You helped us access the finances of you know, um, Madeleine, like, I just found it tough because we're, we're not motivated to see him as a character worthy of sympathy. Yes. Like he's such a moany and insecure and controlling force in the book that it's really difficult to understand why Renee would want to be with him objectively. Like, like, why would she want to string him along on a second voyage knowing who he is? She just wants to torment him. That's all she knows. And, yeah, but that's all yeah. she knows. I get that. And here's another man who's willing to throw his money and attention at me. Yeah. But this is the man that she screwed over in the first half yes. with Gevinier. Why would she want to watch him, un unless she enjoys it, squirm and panic and struggle in his desperation to prove that she is some... Why would she want to put herself into that unless she needed, as yeah. you said, another sugar daddy, right? And, uh, yeah. But that just brings me to the, the realization that there are no redeeming characters in this story. Like... She's as controlling, if that's the case, and as vindictive and as screwed up as he is. She, I, I can't view her as a victim. I can't view her as a victim of male authority and sort of misogynistic culture because she is, she's as culpable and as yeah. responsible for stringing him along yeah. as Gevinier was, right? Like she willingly steps into a second movement with him. Yeah. I don't know. I, I went for two and a half. Okay. Because I just couldn't get past the... Even if they're they're blueprinted, I, I just couldn't get past the... Yeah. I, I keep coming back to the same terms. But. I'm like between three and a three and a half, but I just... No, like I, I agree. Like Three and a half for those reasons I mentioned. You explained it well. Yeah. I'm not explaining it as well, but... No, no you are. You, I just can't get over the things I don't like about them. I, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, so as I said, but I, I think maybe because I wasn't able to sympathize with them, I became emotionally detached. Mm -hmm. And do you become emotionally detached, or do you become angry with that character? So you can go. <laughs> I either, seem to have become. <laughs> you can go either direction. Yeah, right? I you seem can be to neutral, have become angry. Or you can be passionate about the character, going like, "Oh, he's a tragic victim," uh -huh. or, "Okay, whatever." That's the new, more neutral ground. And then there's your ground on on it, right? So it's just it's just. Terms it's interesting. Of, yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking too, just in terms of like trying to psychologically profile the character. The idea that, I don't know if you agree with this, but his father pushed him into the police, the police force. Police yeah. force. And the fact that, you know, he couldn't. Th this is a patriarchal society yeah. and he couldn't cope because he had vertigo and this man lost his life. And I don't think he's upset more about the man dying, the constable dying more so, probably after the fact that he failed as a man mm -hmm. in that situation. Yeah. And that's made him angry and bitter and he wants to find some faucet of control out elsewhere in life and this is what he does and he couldn't also yeah he couldn't join the army he no. couldn't serve in the war exactly. which would have also emasculated him yes to a certain extent exactly and he's yeah. drinking uh -huh. And, uh -huh. and he's drinking and he's obsessive and he's trying to find the ideal life that he wanted for himself and madeline was that key to him maybe and or just, was she the instrument that he could control. He could and control. is that why he's so obsessive and controlling? Because these other features of his life have denied him any sort of 
this is who I am. Yeah. I'm in control of my identity as a soldier, as a police officer. Yes. He's got so many hang-ups that at least if he exerts his control over a, a woman. Yes. You know, but that, again, that brings me back to the sickness of the book. And maybe that's what the authors are trying to get at, the sickness of that sort of... If you really want to give them credit, yeah. you could talk about how he, the character of Flavier, is a template or a symbol for what all of that's wrong in a misogynist society. Yeah. All that's wrong with masculinity. Like... A masculinity needs to be completely re-understood, as I think it's, it is in our time now, becoming yes. um, a much more um, spoken about, studied upon, emotional toxic landscape. Yeah, toxic masculinity. So yeah. I think that we're getting to, you know, we're getting to a better place. But maybe in 1956, this is the author's way of trying to communicate some of these some of these problems uh, and and although he's a hyperbolic example of it, yeah. maybe Flavier could stand as a symbol for all that's wrong with a toxic masculine figure. And maybe they're trying to subvert things too. I mean, this probably goes into when we take we take a look at the perpetrators, particularly, I guess, Jevenet. Um, actually, all three of them are perpetrators in their own way. Yeah. Um, if you look at Renee, um, flash, flash, Madeline, I mean, she's basically, in a way, she's like the femme fatale of the story. So the how are the... Are they are the writer trying to communicate that how he treats her is because is she deserving of that because she was involved in this skullduggery? Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe. And that's yeah. and we're and we're supposed to if you think of like the film that you know like think of like Ava Gardner in The Killers or Phyllis Dietrichson in you know Barbara Stanwyck in um, Double Indemnity, those are characters that were supposed to you know cheer their fates. Yeah. In in a way, right? Because they were the. They weren't the wronged woman. They were just like Jezebels. They were, mm -hmm. you know, femme fatales, and they deserved that fate for, for being that way. And I, maybe the writers are trying to subvert that by showing them as a victim in this story, yeah. as well as a perpetrator. Yeah, maybe. But well, I guess we'll we'll get into yeah, that when we, we get to the yeah. um, perpetrators category. All right. Well, let's move on to investigation. Uh, this this for me is a is really a story of two halves, Josh. Like the way I look at it, anyway. The first, I mean, structurally it is. Yeah. But. In terms of my appreciation of it as well, the first half to me is more compelling. I found that way where the build-up to and the fascination with Madeline is happening. Yeah. Like I still have some like there's elements of even like a ghost story in there, you know. That's and, right. Yeah, the dark caves that he remembers from his childhood and Madeline being possessed, that type of stuff. Dark cave that's very Plato. Yeah, it is actually. Yeah, the fire and all that. Like yeah. I've still got some compassion for Flavier and I'm still interested in him in his struggle at, in this first half I found the second half of the book though just replete absolutely filled to the brim with preposterous unnecessary behaviors uh, he has why... almost like the worst relapse if you think about it <laughs> I'll say because that's, yeah. and I think that's kind of where I think maybe the staging of Paris in World War II makes sense mm -hmm. because you have the murder happening prior to the invasion of Paris right the suicide, so to speak. Yeah. And then we have, he's unable to join the army. We know that. And then he's then separated four years from us. And then he, a psychiatrist tells him, time to get over Madeline. He's like, okay, finally I'll go do it. Then he sees a newsreel and then he's triggered. And then all the repression, the fact that he couldn't fight for his country for four years, you know, during that time period, anything that would allow him to be a man again, he wasn't able to do obviously because he's still seeing a psychiatrist about his situation. And then he's triggered by that newsreel and I think by that point, like mm. the switch was flicked to, yeah. to crazy town right mm -hmm. then and there. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the reason why they use that World War II setting. Because remember I was discussing why set this during 
World War II. Like, why not set it in the present day when they were writing the story? Yeah. But they chose World War II specifically because maybe they're talking about subverting these masculine tropes of heroism and the inability to do that and how that affects the male psyche, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, when we get to environs, we can explore that. Yeah. Um, getting back to the second half of the book, though, for me, like, why does Renee play with Flavier for so long? I don't understand why she does that. She knows that he spoiled goods because she lured him the first time yeah. in the first plot, and now she's luring him again. It's remarkable, and I think more than a bit serendipitous that he sees her on a you know on I a think newsreel. She, she's but, he's an easy mark. Well, yeah, but to live off his money, a bit like she did Jevenier and Almarian or Almarian. Almarian. Why yeah. doesn't she just find another man? Like why him? Unless she's a sucker for punishment as well. Maybe. And she's as trapped as he is, you know? The execution, though, of Madeline's killing, I think, would have taken some work on the part of Jevenier and René, realistically. Yes. Like... That's, yeah. That's a bit... That, you know, that's, did that's she a, know what she was into? Did she, did, did she know... Well, that's what I wonder. That he was going to kill her, or she was just doing what he was told to be done. Was she a side piece to Jevenet as well? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like it's hard to say. Yeah, because we don't know the conversation that happened after because he yeah. fled the scene. Because the fact that Jevenet went out in public with her, people would have saw Jevenet, the shipbuilding magnate, with this woman. Yes. Right? Yeah. And maybe like people would know him. Like if people knew Jevenet in his own social circles, they'd be like, "Oh, that Jevenet with his mistress." Yeah, but and because, every, yeah. And because of the patriarchal yeah. society, they're like, "That's fine. Everybody's got a mistress." Exactly. Like who cares? Everybody's got a but mistress. Je, but of course, Flavier didn't know that. No, Flavier didn't know that. He thought that was Madeline. The real, the real uh, yeah. This is just a book where there's no winners. Like no. redemption is not high or strong in this book, no. and so we have to consider it on its thematic. It's very noir level, you know. It, it is, very, yeah. Very well, we know way. how interested the writers were in noir, don't we? Yeah. But I mean, you think about it, right? The perpetrators, Javinier and Rene, both die. Yeah. The victim, the real victim, Madeleine, is killed. Yeah. And the chump, who's Flavier, yeah, is led to murder through his torment. Yeah. And and also, I guess, through the perpetrators, yeah. and then arrested. It almost goes to the, the extreme that Noir doesn't do, is with what Noir would do normally in this situation would be that the man would have been seduced by the femme fatale, mm-hmm. and then he does something that gets himself screwed over, and then he dies, and then the femme fatale is punished by the forces of law or some other figure besides the hero. The hero gets screwed over, and then the femme fatale gets punished for her sexuality as well as for her... You know her um, totally um, malevolence, I guess you could say. So the difference with the Vertigo is that the writers they decided to essentially go to the next step and have the hero character that gets screwed over by the femme fatale exact his revenge on her, mm-hmm. and then in the end realize that by destroying her, I also destroy myself. Yeah, right. But okay. he doesn't realize that because mm. he's in his delusional world. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing with Pauline Larjolac is that I think it sets up the idea of reincarnation or the afterlife for the crazed Flavier by the end. Mm-hmm. So that he sees himself, you know, I'll see you in the next life, essentially. Which is kind of how the book ends. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. It, it is just evident, though, the, I mean, the, through this book, particularly the second half, just how deluded and in love with a fantasy this character is. And I yes. get that that's part of it, right? But did you like how the ending... I mean, you were mentioning Barbara Stanwyck's character from Double Indemnity and these other sort of femme fatales that we cheer on for their fates mm-hmm. a few minutes ago. Recent, we we yeah. can never really we can never really cheer on Renee, but we're, we're 
we kind of see her as a victim because we're figuring out the whole second half. Does he have this right? Why is this girl letting him treat her this way? Yeah. And then at the end, we learn her complicitness yeah. with the the, the the first plot. Did you like how that was revealed at the end? Or would you have liked to have known earlier that she was who he thought she was? And that's where the movie kind of gets a jump on because yeah. we know that that is Kim Novak with the wig, with, yeah. the, with the different hair color in the second half of the story, Yeah. right? But in the book, though, are we sure 100% that he'd recognize this woman as Renee Serange? Mm-hmm. Sorry, as... Madel- as, as Madeline's Madeline, double, yeah. is this the same woman, or is he just so obsessive and and triggered that he thinks this woman is this woman and she's not? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in terms of style, you know. Yeah. Because that's also a feature that we score under the eye of pipes. In terms of style, I I didn't always like what I was reading, but here I give the writers credit uh, because of how suffocating and wrapped up his own mindscape is yes. particularly in the second half the, the the pronouns and the switching of pronouns and like he goes okay. from her madeleine to renee they start to be used interchangeably and those titles yeah. are obviously representative of how he doesn't even know anymore the blurring essentially it's totally blurred right yeah. like on the sentence and in the sentence and on the page, like readers are just trying to keep up with him. And I mean, I, I like that stylistically. Yeah. The the book is well written, but I just found it repetitive in... The second half is very repetitive. Yeah. I found the momentum and plot and the story, build, the world building in particular of in the first half of the story intrigued me more. Um, I even liked, you know, a lot of the, even like the description of like the, Parisian landscape in there and the outlying area I thought even though like it wasn't over the it wasn't like overdone in terms of description right it still worked for the story Mm -hmm. and uh, there were some good passages in there I just like all the stuff about I just like seeing the slow development from being a case a case for him to uh, a curiosity to almost almost like a lust or almost like a jealousy of what Jevenet has and how he's throwing this beautiful woman away think she's crazy but he doesn't care because he'll take care of her instead yeah where that chivalry turns into a monstrosity by you know and then the, the, turns and then quickly it does and the thing is is that but it builds up and builds up to like where he's still following her but then that vertigo kicks in in the tower and that's when he realizes i can't follow her and that must have frustrated him so much and then you have her death and then having to deal with that so no wonder he cracked you know, mm. and I think the the first half of the book builds up to that beautifully, and I think you can pull any number of chap of passages from that book and and quote them. Um, I thought some of them were were very well written, despite maybe I'm just wondering: is there a lost in translation? Yeah, factor in I was going to ask you that. Like maybe does the French prose yeah. pop more and give more mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oomph? You know, like, almost certainly it would. Yeah, because but... I found the writing straightforward, but I found that it it navigated those usual tropes and cliches of the genre. And it was descriptive, but it was also very taut. Hmm. And I think that worked for the writing okay. in, in, in that fashion. Like, it was a good balance of both. Well, I'm just wondering, Sainsbury's translation is the one that has, you know, persisted mm-hmm. since the publication of the text. And obviously, we don't have a handle on the native source mm-hmm. story in its language as much as, you know, 
we would like to. We'd like to. So I do wonder, yeah, what was lost in translation. But it is a good translation. Yeah. There are stylistic moments. Sainsbury's done a nice job here. If any listeners but, of the yeah. show uh, out there have read you it, read yeah. the, the, the original French print of mm-hmm. Vertigo, um, if you have, like, does it pop for you the way that the... I don't know if you can read both the English and the French. Can you compare them mm-hmm. in terms of... Uh, do they? Does one have a little bit of more... Flair, yeah. Flair than the other. I'm, I'm curious mm. to see what people think about that. For sure. All right, so um, in terms of uh, investigation, I gave it a score of three and a half. That's what I did too. Okay. I found the writing competent. It ranged from competent to brilliant in certain moments. And we'll go back to this again. You can tell the authors are busting with presenting this protagonist in the way that they do, but... They're conveying the, the story, these themes and ideas on a simplistic level. Like they're presenting these ideas and this story on this canvas. Mm. And to me, this dovetails in terms of how the author presents to us the main character through their perspective. And, and the, you know, and they give us the symptoms about the, how the character is going to lead to where he's going to. And, and, you know, and they're hard to miss. You know, there's so many things in there. But to me, it's very transparent. Mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm really going for. It's very transparent. And we're going back to, you know, this was tailored for Alfred Hitchcock to read, essentially. Um, what was it? Like, you it, you obviously pay, you you, you, pay, you invest in that theory. You think it was. I huh? kind of do. Yeah. I kind of, I can't help thinking about it after I read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad I read the book in a, in a bubble outside of, like, I, for, I did my best to put the movie behind me. Uh-huh. And I read this book in a bubble. But then when I read about the authors to see if I can get more of that bubble... I was pulled back more into the Hitchcock adaptation because of what I read about it. Now you could that that story could be incorrect. It could be that you know he saw the newsreel and then he like Flavi he did and then he was possessed to write the story the way in that was in that fashion. Yeah, um, and in this way. But that could also be revisionist history on the part of the authors who don't want to who don't want to say yeah we kind of did want this ex- to go ex- to Hitchcock ex- exactly. So I'm kind of caught in between that. But like I said, the writing goes from competent to brilliant yeah. in most cases. Um, the second half, to me, I think they just overindulged on the insanity of the character, and they could have been made things more subtle. I think that would have been a better time to give like flashbacks to his childhood to connect things together. Like they had a good nexus with the psychiatrist, but they didn't explore that enough to me. Yeah. Like we had more scenes of the psych- him and the psychiatrist. I think that would also have been given us more sympathy, so that when the trigger happens, when he sees her in the newsreel, and these four years are gone by, and he sees the woman that he loved, obsessed with not just love, but obsessed with, mm-hmm. back from the dead, then it's understandable where he went, tragically understandable where he went, but we don't get that. So to us, it's as tragic. We're just seeing, we're just seeing an, an obsessive stalker, essentially, by, by the end of the story. Yes. So we both went 3.5 on investigation. Perpetrators. We've got Javinier and Rene, who realistically are the perpetrators. Yes. Now, if you wanted to, if you wanted to widen the story out, you could get Alma Ryan as a perpetrator, the way he preys on women and all of that. But we're not interested at yeah. this stage, and we're He's not going to do that. Of those types. He, exactly, and he has really very little to do in the story. So, yeah. I don't see him as a perpetrator out with the larger macro social. You know, he's just a stepstone for Renee, essentially. Yeah, exactly to access the story or to enter the scene. So, okay, um, you go first on this one, then. I think the main perpetrator that we get the most detail on is probably Jevenet. I mean, we see him through Flavier's perspective. That you know, that, yeah, it's his filter. Yeah, he wasn't. A, he's not an attractive man. Uh, he's not someone who has charisma, but he was able to cross a line ethically 
um, morally mm-hmm. to get what he wants. Like he got his, who knows what happened to her father. Maybe he killed, killed, killed the father somehow and his father-in-law, I should say, and took over the, the shipbuilding company. And then he wanted the rest of the money that was, uh, you know, that he needed more and more greed, right? And he's mm-hmm. a war profiteer making money. And that just triggers something in you that, well, this is the best time to do it and uh, no one will notice. And, you know, I think if anyone is in the story, I think is truly malevolent. I would say it's Jevenet, whereas Flavier is just mentally unstable. I don't think, the, like, I think that patriarchal attitude that we see in his character, the misogyny, that's reflective in society. But it's amplified his, a bit. It's amplified yeah. through his insanity. Yeah. And, and that's what or we his see. Repression or or yeah. repression of that, which, which makes it explode, essentially. <laughs> yeah. But Jevenet in particular, um, yeah, he is like your typical, you know, in a whodunit. He's the guy, he's the guy responsible for everything. And he is the main perpetrator in the story, I think, because everything, all his actions lead to the ending that we get, you know, no matter what, right? Right. So I would say that, um, yeah, he is definitely the perpetrator of the story. He's killed off Paige, so we don't get that kind of resolve to his story. That's when the story switches gears, where it's not really Jevenet. Mm-hmm. We only learn that Jevenet did kill his wife in that confession at the end at the end yeah but it makes sense when when she tells oh, it, it it does make sense, it makes perfect sense. but I, I gotta ask you when he's gunned down yeah and we learn about him being gunned down in the beginning of the second half um at that stage we're feeling sorry for Jevenier because we don't know like we know or we don't yet know how he you know set up his yeah, wife's murder who was concerned about his wife. about his wife and he employed his pal or his old pal to kind of look after her and you know the the weight of responsibility is laid firmly at Flavier's feet yeah. when Madeline dies. And I'm feeling sorry for Jevenier, and I'll admit that I was sad. Well, sad. You know, I wasn't crying, but I was, yeah. I was disappointed, and I felt for him when he was killed, machine gunned down. Um, it was a plot point, which at the time really worked, I think, at building sympathy, which the story lacks, plot points that help to build sympathy. Exactly. But in the end, in sympathy. the end, did he get what he deserved? My question to you. I mean, yeah. He did. Yeah, he did. Because he just set up his wife to get killed. So, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know eye for an eye and all that. but He was killed so indiscriminately yeah. and stuff. But no one knows what he did, you know. But it made you... And and will Flavier confess what happened? And tell her, will they know the story? Will Jevenet be shamed? Will Jevenet's name be well, shamed? Who would, who would believe him afterwards? Exactly. Who would believe, oh, right, well, you know, this girl was the one who... You know, he's the only one alive. It could just be words of a madman, right, yeah, to say that. that's true. But presumably, though, like, presumably when Jevenier, and this is written off page, so we don't know, it's not on the page. When Jevenier dies, yes. that's when Rene left Paris for Marseille yes, and meets up with Almorayan. I can put that together, yeah. Yeah, you, you're happy to go with that. But she's a victim, too, as much as she's a perpetrator. Because, yeah, she's guilty for leading Flavier on in the second half no, we of the book. She, we know she was, she's with Elmar Ryan at, at, after the liberation of Paris. Yes. But we don't know. Like, she could have been, you know, down in Vichy, France. She could have been a collaborator with the Germans trying to survive. Like, they don't mention anything Well, no, we don't that. know what happens in her four years. Yeah, exactly. We only see her come back into the story. Exactly. So we don't know how many written, step yeah. stones that she goes to. We know that she was... I think she's like half English, half French, or something. Like, didn't she say that uh, in, her, yeah. in her background story? She said that she was she always lived in England or something. I mean, she's a woman though, as as a victim. As much as she's a perpetrator, she's still a woman in this world where women like are doing what they can to survive. Yeah. And I, again, I come back and I circle around to 
credit for the authors and, and maybe suggesting that the gender roles need to be in this post immediate post-war world I'm, they need to be yeah softened they need to be flexed a bit they like, do i would argue that maybe you agree with me maybe you don't that the most sympathetic character in this story is probably renee yes I because so. she can be seen more than other characters as a victim of the patriarchy. Well, totally, um, yeah. And as someone who's just trying to survive in this situation. And, you know, she just made the wrong choices and it ended up, well, we're, we're going. So maybe the writers want us to sympathize with the femme fatale. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this isn't like, again, I'm just double, going back to James and Kane. This isn't, for example, like the postman rings twice. It's not the same type of character. No, not at all. But I wonder how much is lost in our ability to sympathize with these characters. Like, I think my perpetrator score would be higher if the writers didn't go for that twist ending. Yeah. If we had another 30 pages of development in, you know, uh, in and around these characters, if they opted to not go heavy on the twist at the end... She's I more, think I would like these more. Yeah, I agree with you. What did you go for? What was your score? I went for three. You went for three, right. Well, I obviously liked them a little bit more than you. I went 3.5. Okay. Um, what about environs? Now, here I think we'll, we can talk about the backdrop of World War II. I mean, it does make for an interesting, effective, thematic backdrop. Yes. However, we don't I, really feel the presence of... We're told about... He can't... We heard where he talk, they talk about the mobilization. Um, they talk about, you know, how he couldn't join the army. Right, mm-hmm. um, but we don't get the feeling that Paris is about to be taken. Like we're not feeling. I, I know that's where where the story starts. We have the French army on you know on the borders of the Rhineland at the time. So you know the Blitzkrieg hasn't happened yet. You know the invasion hasn't happened and all this sort of stuff. So they haven't reached that part yet. It, it's coming, but it hasn't reached it there. But I never got the sense of impending doom that I should feel in the narrative. It was more about, you know, him on the case, you know, working through things. And maybe that's fine, having that in the background or whatnot. But if you're going to set during that period and you want to have those thematic elements that you could take from that period of, like, you know, Paris during the mm-hmm. Second World War, then maybe make them a bit more present in the background, you know, maybe. Yeah. And they're yeah. writing, though. Remember, they're writing for an audience that was still rebuilding its cities. Yeah, so exactly. So they, they would have had more of it, like... You got to be careful not to be too critical because they would have had more of it right in front of them in their actual day to day. Exactly. So So they may not want to trigger some people in that fashion. uh, I I don't even know so much about them concerned about it. Or not be crass about it, maybe. Yeah, be crass about it. I think maybe partly that and also that they don't need to. So we're reading this in the future, trying to identify significance symbolic or otherwise and maybe maybe we're stretching too far to do that maybe. because it would have been a more realistic practical um and visible world for the reader at the time yeah but i also felt josh like that i was forcing a link between the environment and the thematics as a reader and that it wasn't just there i was forcing it and i was conscious of forcing a symbolic reading yes. of the story there's nothing wrong with that, just being yeah. a backdrop. It can be a backdrop and an effective backdrop. Yeah. But I suppose if I was like, if I was just developing or designing like a study guide, like a Cliff's Notes or yeah. a, a, a Cole's Notes for this novel, yeah, I could draw and I would 
draw a more significance between, oh, that environmental dressing there uh, to the chaos of war and uncertainty of what was happening in the rebuilding of Paris or its occupation and his mental landscape. Yeah. Like I, would, I could see myself doing that. And you could go through the pages of the book and you could find, oh, here's a reference to a crumbled building. And yes, yes, look at what Flavier next does. He's got a crumbled mind, you know, yeah. like you could do that if you wanted. But academics might descend into that territory where the torment and the madness of the character yeah. is equated to or equal uh, to the the chaos of the city rebuilding itself or whatever, or the bombs yeah. threatening and all that. But to me, that's that's a bit... That's a bit of an intangible pressure on a reader. It's a bit of an existential story that I'm, or an adventure really, I, I don't really want to go into. And I think I think that would be giving the writers too much credit, to be honest. I think that would be something you could do if you wanted to help with like creating excess for the story. Yeah, world I don't building. think in world building. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I'm, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? What do you think that that Boileau, Narsajak, what do you think they intend for us to see in this environmental dressing? I think we're going to a psychological landscape here. Yeah. Um, I will, I will, one thing I gave, like, one thing I really liked about the, I would have probably have given the environs a, a even lower mark mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the atmosphere and whatnot in the fact, because we don't really get a lot of, like, the typical kind of detection fiction atmosphere, the kind of really good descriptive atmosphere you get from Chandler or someone... No, it's all mental. It's all mental. It's all closed within the mind. Yeah, totally. I, I do yeah. like the idea that almost uh, Paris, in a way, um, which you get... This is the one aspect I think they did portray. I think maybe there's a war going on or about to go on, is that a lot of Paris seems like all the young men and all the soldiers are probably out on the front lines. And so, therefore, Paris feels very empty. Mm -hmm. Empty in this. It's almost like it's like you're filming a movie and they got rid of all... The, they shut down all the roads... And they're just filming this move. This they're they're telling the story through like the empty streets of Paris. Like we get some people. Like we get you know we get the uh, the couple that runs the tavern um, or the nun and yeah. all this sort of couple stuff. of barkeeps. Couple of barkeeps. Yeah. Basically, very functional characters. Totally. Yeah. But at the same time, like there's a sense of emptiness to Paris when they show it, like the cemetery mm -hmm. or even the banks on the Seine, and even going outside the countryside where it's very kind of like docile and stuff like that, pastoral almost. So you get a sense of that, like it's like an almost like an evacuated city, and something is on the verge. Mm -hmm. And I think they portrayed that well, and they made and so like the real physical landscape isn't really the story they're telling here. They're not here to yeah. world. They're not here to travelogue us through Paris and to transport and, you and, and to make the it place, like a, yeah. a spy thriller kind of thing. They're going to a psychological landscape with with, with, with this story, okay. and that's yeah. what they seem interested in. As I said, they're going for that like clinical credulity. You know, they want to make us believe in the profiles of these characters and how the way they act and whatnot. And and I think that's where the writing um, for the environs works in this story. Yeah. I'm with you, man. Uh, I'm with you 100%. Yeah. I this might is... even be a three and a half on this, but I'll yeah. just stay with my original three. Okay. But... Well, this, this is not a book of external environments. It yeah. is a book of internal yeah. landscape and torment. So style works well, but yeah, you do have to factor that into your scoring. This isn't a book that you're going to get impressed by descriptive moments of, you know, the city. Like, there are some, but yeah, it's not that type of story. So, you went for a three, and I was for a three as well. Okay. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was 3.5. 3.5, yeah, okay. I, I apologize. Right. Uh, secondary supporting characters. 
correct. This is this is quick. <laughs> Basic requirements to fill a scene, essentially. Yeah. You know, we get a Marseille inspector, a tavern owning family. We get the, the nun, the nun, as you mentioned, yeah. a helpful, a helpful nun, and a psychiatrist. Um, and then we get uh, what's his name, Darmanian, or the only kind of other Almarian. Almarian, yeah, Almarian, the only other really. Darmanian sounds like sounds like a Game of Thrones character. It does, yeah. But in the end, I'm going to say, you know, it was functional, but it wasn't anything like spectacular either. So I'll pass it at two and a half. Yeah. Well, what, what else can you do? Yeah. I think I think to give it less is to ignore the character's functions. Yes. To give it more is to really be reaching and say there's a lot that's overselling. So yeah. yeah, it was two and a half for me as well. Yeah. So our totals then for Vertigo. Three and a half, three and a half. That's seven, ten. Huh. <laughs> Our totals for Vertigo are, are of interest. Uh, the last book we did together, yeah, which was Beast in View by Margaret Miller. We tied, didn't we? We tied. Not only did we tie, but we tied on every category, which was never before. Yes. Now here, together here, doing Vertigo, we've also tied at 15 and a half. We got there different ways, Yes. but our final score is exactly the same. Huh. Are we too similar as readers? I don't. I, I mean, I think I think the the fact that we 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 tie in different categories most of the time yeah. um, indicates that you know we're similar, but I think we have enough difference in there to create a distinction in, in which you know we 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 see things differently sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, there you go. That's that's our uh, that's our take on Vertigo. Um, let us know yours on Lighting the Pipes. You can reach us at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com or indeed check us out on uh, Instagram, which is where we post most of our stuff. We've, we've been pretty absent from the socials lately, it has to be said. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're aware of that, both busy men. Uh, we'll get back to it soon. Um, but yeah. yeah, by all means, uh, let us know what you thought of the story. Did you, as Josh suggests, did you maybe get more pop out of it in its uh, original language? Or are you like us reading the um, the translation by Jeffrey Sainsbury? Jeffrey Sainsbury, thank you. And um, yeah, what, what do you think of it? Or are you blanketed or unable to see the text outside of Hitchcock's film, which of course transforms the ending, uses it as a template, sets in San Francisco, right? Yes. It's been a while since I've seen it, but San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah, is the first act of the different book. ending. Totally different ending, yeah. 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 Yeah, let us know what you think. Josh, what's coming up on uh, Lighting the Pipes? What's our next title? Well, uh, there should be an LTP Noir coming soon. Um, I haven't decided which one I'm going to do, because we just recently released uh, Criss Cross. Yep. yep. And we also got Beast in View on the reading side out for you guys. So the next book... um... We could do Kestrel's Five Decembers. Which is the big uh, Pearl Harbor investigation. The hard case one. That one's kind kind of of cool. Yeah, absolutely. A couple Mm. to choose from. We've got a few to choose from. I think I'm down for the Pearl Harbor thing, the hard case one. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we go uh, Hard Case Crimes, Five Decembers by James Kestrel, and then we'll go on to... Batman? Yeah, let's Batman. do let's do let's do some Batman on sure. the show. That'd be cool. That'd be cool, yeah. And I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do a nice write-up on Bob Kane and, and the origin of Batman and stuff. Yeah. And Frank Miller, because he's a pretty big figure in crime, awesome. crime fiction. Well there you go. As it happens, some uh, great reading coming up on Lighting the Pipes to end the summer and start the fall. So we hope uh, hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks for sticking with us and we'll get you back here soon. See you later. Bye.